You're listening to The Spiritual Awakening Show. I'm your host, Brent Spirit, and today we're joined by Mel Hoffman for another part of the ongoing Kundalini Awakening series. Mel has over 50 years of experience with Kundalini process, which began when she was just a teenager at Yogi Bhajan's ashram. Today, she lives and serves in California as an energy healer and as an artist. She's got a lot of wisdom and experience to share, and together we dive deep into it all. You can watch our conversation on my YouTube channel called Brent Spirit, where you can also find more Kundalini content. Now, let's jump right into this conversation with Mel Hoffman. Enjoy. Take us back to those early days before Kundalini began to be a very clear and obvious experience in your life. What was going on for you? How did you how did you find yourself experiencing these things? And, you know, go at your own pace, but bring us all the way up to today where you find yourself here in your art studio, okay. sharing your message, sharing your energy. Let's get right into it's it. A, yeah, it's a very long, long, complicated journey. But for some reason, one of the first things that came to mind was um, my memories of, of Ramdas, actually, because Ramdas and Yogi Bhajan were friends back then. Um, as were a lot of the, you know, holy men, and there were very few women. Um, and there was actually this event that took place in San Francisco called the Meeting of the Ways, and Yogi Bhajan was there, and Satchitananda was there, and um, Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach was there, Stephen Gaskin was there. All these people were there. Um, and I was just I was just a kid, basically, I was a teenager. And um, when I was about 15, I started taking Kundalini yoga classes in Berkeley. And um, they would hold them like uh, at the Unitarian Church or um, at a rec center or whatever. Um, and basically, it kind of led me into a period of time in my life where I was really spending most of my time with adults. Um, I wasn't with my peers. Um, I was very influenced by the teachers of uh, Kundalini Yoga who were around then. And it was before um, everyone started to take on different names and started to dress in white and wear turbans and all the rest of it. Um, so it was kind of the that transitional period when people were basically kind of you know, normal or whatever. They hadn't like taken the Sikh vows. And so I never really got into that part of it. I was just in it when it was the um, Banana Ananda Ashram in San Rafael. And then um, I think by the time I left, the name had changed to Hargobind Saddam, named after um, Guru Hargobind. There were the, the whole lineage of Sikh uh, gurus who um, had led up to, I don't know, I don't even remember all the details, but I remember them talking about Guru Nanak a lot and things like that. Um, we would do the Ekon Kar Satnam Sri Guru mantra every morning. And uh, at this point, it's hard for me to remember how long it was, but um, it was probably at least an hour every morning that I was doing this practice. And honestly, that is not normal behavior for a 16 year old at all. I mean, I just was not, um, 
on the same path as my peers. Um, there were, I think there was one other teenager who lived there at the time, but basically I was kind of, kind of it. And um, my parents had separated and my mother was still living in Berkeley with my brothers. And um, I was just like out in the world on my own with, with all of these adults. Um, and despite the fact that it was called Kundalini Yoga, nobody ever really talked about what Kundalini was or what would happen if your Kundalini awakened. Um, so when I'd been doing these practices intensively every day, doing the physical yoga, the breathing, the mantra, all of it, um, and I started to have these experiences, honestly, I didn't even know what was happening to me. Um, I knew that there was energy. I knew that there was high vibration. I knew that it was moving through my body. But what had been described to me as kundalini uh, being like a coiled snake at the base of the spine and then, you know, rising up through the central channel and through all the chakras and, and resulting in enlightenment. Um, that was not really what I experienced. So I, you know, I just thought I was basically kind of um, losing my mind, you know? And maybe if I told anybody, they'd probably want to lock me up or something. Because um, part of it was actually hearing voices. And it's like, you know, you talk to people who are hearing voices and you think, well, there must be something really seriously wrong with them. And the way that I've always viewed it ever since then was that actually the reality is that there are, are these voices. I mean, like I was probably hearing the voices of the uh, people who used to live in this big mansion that the ashram was housed in um, that hadn't, you know, passed on into the light or whatever. And so instead they were, you know, going after me and yelling at me and pinning me to the floor and um, driving me crazy. Um, so when I hear about people hearing voices, I think, well, yeah, they're just they're just tuned in. They they can hear them because um, I could hear them. I don't hear them anymore. I haven't heard them for many years. But part of that is because um, I very intentionally stopped doing the yoga because I just thought, oh my god, you know. I mean, if I keep doing this, I'm I'm really going to go off the deep end. Um, and it did lead to some really profound and interesting experiences, like um, the experience of, of falling into this just big, vast, dark hole that even at age 16, I could identify it as the void. And I don't know how I knew that it was the void, but it was this kind of, um, I don't know, there was a gentleness to it, a softness to it, um, kind of a free falling, like I've actually jumped out of an airplane as a, an, adult, an adult and it was not that kind of experience. It was like just sort of a, you know, gentle falling into this blackness. Um, and then the other really um, profoundly incredible experience was um, a morning when I'd been laying in corpse pose in the meditation room um and all of a sudden i was just like surrounded by this beautiful celestial music um i could tell that there were angels there i could not see them but i could feel them and hear them 
Um, they were playing, playing harps, they were laughing, they were singing. Um, it, it, it just felt like there was like an overflow of, of angels going from the meditation room into the next room. And um, it was interesting because I didn't really feel like I was part of what was going on. Like there wasn't a communication that was happening, but it was like just being surrounded in this, um, in this presence. And then when I developed my cards, which are, I can't remember if I said the name of them again, but anyway, it's sacred journey medicine cards. When I developed them, I have a card that's related to that experience. Um, and because of it, it was just so profound and, and it was so separate from the reality that I'd experienced prior to living in the ashram. Um, it was like, oh my God, somebody is, somebody's here, somebody has like shown up for me. Um, and that was something that I didn't experience as a child. I experienced my parents as being very preoccupied with themselves and not really able to um, guide me or support me emotionally or um, be, you know, even be a part of my life. Um, so the presence of the angels was, very you know very profoundly special to me um but then the other point that i was making before about there just not being much support for what i was going through is that all of this didn't really make a whole lot of sense because i didn't i didn't hear about other people having these kinds of experiences and um and it's quite possible that they that they weren't because I've um, made contact with people that I knew back then um, in recent years. And apparently, um, at least for most of them, this is that kind of thing that never happened to them. So they didn't have the sort of um, fear <laughs> that I had um, because they weren't having that experience. Right. This is pretty consistent with my limited experience with that lineage, Kundalini Yoga. You know, they're all around the world and anybody can attend a class today. They host regular classes and I've been to some and they will lead a a group of 30, 40 people in some sort of breath work. And I remember sitting there saying, oh, there's no way I'm doing any of this breath work. At this point, I understood the implications and what what's possible and how powerful they are but for the most part people will do the breath work and nothing really significant will happen but for a few of us you know we can go down or down a path like like you went down and there's not much support and i've spoken about this in an earlier segment of this kundalini series where the western yoga approach talks about kundalini awakening in a very like lofty sort of far out mystical thing that might happen you know in like a thousand lifetimes from now. But when it actually starts happening to an individual, there's not a lot of support. The teacher can't really help you. And it's very, very difficult. It's very traumatizing as well. And I imagine this was maybe part of why you at some point left this lineage. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, actually, um, 
I just stayed for nine months, one one school year. My last year of high school, I graduated one year early. And I did all independent study. So I was really mostly in the ashram that entire time. Um, we, actually, one thing that really hit me was that my my roommate, I had an adult roommate. Um, I don't even know how she was, maybe 25 or something. Um, and then one day she told me she was getting married. And um, the guy that she was getting married to, um, like she just met him. And Yogi Bhajan had decided that they were going to get married. And I thought, oh, my God, <laughs> I can't stay here. Or, you know, I'm going to end up getting married to somebody I don't even know. Um, Yogi Bhajan was not um, a stable person. He was not um, a good person. Um, I did not like him. Um, unlike many people who kind of worshipped him, I felt very uncomfortable around him. Um, and he tended to be very um, critical. Um, but he would get really upset just about simple things like the bathroom not being cleaned or whatever. Um, like, you know, God wasn't gonna come into the, the ashram because the bathroom wasn't clean. I mean, I got this idea that there was this, this God who was like judging us for every single thing we did. Um, and none of that felt felt good to me. And then, of course, years later, I discovered that he was up to all sorts of other stuff that was really terrible. Um, and yet, you know, and yet people were staying with this group. I mean, I still have someone that I introduced to the 3HO who's still in 3HO, um, which at this point, I mean, well, and for a long time, I, I mean, I pretty much view it as a cult. Um, along with a number of other groups. So I wasn't like thinking those things when I left, but I was just thinking about about myself and my life and, and you know, what I wanted to do with my life. And it didn't include um, living in an ashram where there was a teacher who came to visit every once in a while and who would um, be, uh, you know, yelling at us about, um, pretty silly things, really. Right. And I'm that really. Was just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> just yeah. the tip of the iceberg, you say. Yeah. I'm aware of some of these allegations. What, what, you know, the vibe I'm getting alone from what you're sharing is pretty, pretty telling as well. And what would you say to those who feel the need? to have membership in a sort of organization with a sort of figurehead. There are some people who feel that this is necessary. Do you have any advice, any insight for them? Well, I, I basically just feel like we have to be our own, our own teacher or among peers, like the When Lightning Strikes group, which is where I came in contact with you. Um, there, there's there's nobody like heading it really. I mean, there's a somebody who founded it and organized it, but there's not somebody who's saying you need to be this way, you need to do these things, and then this will come to you. Um, because this energy, um, this healing energy, the way I see it, that 
arises or that descends um, is part of is part of all of us. It's not something that can be given to us by somebody else. Um, even though there are people who talk, you know, about Shaktipat, and I actually did receive Shaktipat from um, Mukdamanda at one point, um, and I didn't feel anything. <laughs> you know, I was like, nothing happened. Um, anyway, it's just. Um, I just don't. I just don't think it's necessary, and it can even be harmful to be part of a group like that because there's almost always a certain prescribed way that you're supposed to be. Like maybe you're 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 not supposed to be gay, for example, which is one thing that Yogi Bhajan made very clear. It was not okay to be gay. Um, and then um, I I remember this guy that I just loved to say with Jean Pierre and um, we would cook a lot together in the kitchen. And a um, number of years later, I ran into him on Polk Street in San Francisco, which is a, a very well known gay area. Um, and I thought, oh wow, that you know that was what was really going on. I mean, Jean Pierre was gay, and 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 I loved him, and um, the fact that you can be in a group where you're not accepted for being who you are is a big problem. Um, right. I, I, I completely agree. We all do definitely have the capacity to lead ourselves. There are benefits, of course, of seeking some sort of counsel, guidance, insight, and example from those who may be a little ahead of the journey than us, for sure. But when it becomes a fearful environment when there becomes sort of insistent dogma, shaming, that sort of thing. These are signs to just get out, just get out. And for so many people, it's uh, unfortunate they don't, you know, pick up on those signs. Um, you know, like you said, you've, you had somebody you introduced, or I think you said that you introduced them, but, but many, many years ago, and they're still with this organization, you know, I'm not sure what it is that causes people to stay despite being abused. Maybe they don't recognize there's abuse. Maybe they're getting some benefits. I'm not sure. But for our audience here, my intention is to give people back their power, to have people like you on that come and say, hey, this is my journey. This is my experience. This is the way that I see things. And I, I would love to have people on like, like you that have come from different walks of life to share. This is a very, very diverse path. There isn't one way of doing these things, you know? Um, gay, straight, however you like to identify, however you feel within yourself, nobody is not a candidate to awaken, to have Kundalini come and transform the entire system head to toe. I don't think anybody's, you know, um, not eligible. I think we all are. And anybody who tells you otherwise, you don't even have to waste your time getting upset. Just move on. That's my my take on the matter. But I'll let you keep going with your journey. Uh, so you managed to sort of get out of this this experience uh, at this, uh, what you would call a cult, the 3HO with Yogi Bhajan. Where do you find yourself now? Are you are you still a teenager at this point? Um, oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I went into the ashram when I was 16. Um, and uh, when I was 17, I started college. Um, I went to a community college called College of Marin, which is um, in Marin County, not far from here. Um, and then um, 
transferred to an art school in Mexico, in San Miguel de Inde, Mexico, um, when I was 19. Um, I, I did never go back to my parents, um, I mean, to live with my parents, except um, after I came back from Mexico, I was, I was not well, and I, I did end up living with my father for a while. Um, I, there's so there's so much that happened. I don't know if I really want to go into it because um, it, it could pro probably take us away from the topic at hand. Um, I think perhaps where I would want to go next, even though it would leave out a big chunk of information, um, is to where the, the Koreas started. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were a lot of things that transpired in between, but the truth was I pretty much wanted to shut the show down um, at age 16. I didn't want to be experiencing these things anymore because I, I didn't have anybody that I could talk to about it. And I didn't really even know that it was Kundalini or whatever. I didn't figure that out until the internet came online. Um, but it, there was a point at which Kundalini basically came back into my life in a big way. And prior to that, I pretty much kind of like tried to put a lid on a volcano. <laughs> you know? could, um, I, could I ask how, how you may have tried to do that? I know you want to speak about once the Koreas began again, but, but was there anything in particular that you did to sort of shut this down? Mainly it was stopping the yoga. Okay. Yeah, it was it was stopping any kind of practice like like that. Um, I, I'd been initiated into transcendental meditation when I was 12 um, by uh, a teacher at this private school that I went to when I was young. And that's a whole other story. I mean, that, that place was a shit show, show too. So <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, there's so many things that are just such a mixed experience because the school was like a free school in the 60s and we did all this art and all this creative stuff and everything. And yet there was also a lot of sexual abuse going on between the teachers and the students. And I mean, it was just a big mess. Um, and, uh, you know, to this day, not everybody acknowledges that that was what was happening but um it's kind of like the same thing with the ashram i mean on the outside oh you know you lived in an ashram that's incredible and everything but you're not really looking at um you know what's really going on and i guess that's the point i've gotten to in my life now is that i just um i'm very discerning about what i want to get involved in or not get involved in it's like is this something that is going to nourish me and my family um or is and i i just you know gone through this this week with deciding not to do something that i thought would be a really great thing um i've just really learned how to figure out whether something is going to be a good thing or not but anyway, getting back to the, the Koreas, um, I had gone to this um, 
Crystal Fair here in the Bay Area. Um, and there was a woman there who was giving demos of the um, reconnective healing method. Um, and I thought, oh, okay, I'll, I'll try it out. I'd heard about it and it sounded interesting. Um, and then I ended up going to her for a session. And during the session, um, all of a sudden, like these spontaneous movements and vocalizations started happening. I never had anything like this happen in my life. And I thought, oh my God. I mean, I came, I came there because I felt like I wanted to um, work with a, a, a I, I had a couple of frozen shoulders and it's an extremely painful condition. And I really wanted to heal my frozen shoulder. I wasn't thinking that I was going to, you know, reawaken my kundalini. Um, but that's basically what happened. And um, it got really intense. I mean, really intense. Like people would move their arm and I would like, you know, jump all over the place. Um, the reconnective healing training, which I took uh, over a weekend, um, sometimes they would have more than one people, one more than one people, one more, more than one person work on me, and I was just start screaming. Um, and you know that well, you know they're recording this thing, and for one, I'll delete that part. Um, and it was like all this. Um, you know, all this trauma that I had shoved down um, in addition to the the trauma of the initial Kundalini awakening experience, just like, just, you know, it was just coming out. Like, I mean, I would wake my wife up in the, in the middle of the night, you know, screaming and thrashing around. Um, just every, everything, you know, was just coming up. And it wasn't necessarily um, easy or, or, or comfortable, um, but um, it was kind of like I had no choice except to, you know, to work with it. And interestingly, it wasn't like that uncomfortable or that painful or anything. It was just like a process of, of, of releasing. Um, and fortunately, I remarkably had been working with a therapist for years who I knew had had a Kundalini awakening because he told me about it. Um, and so when I started having the Kriyas, I was able to work with him, with them. Um, and that really became an incredible resource for me. Um, and it's, it's interesting, we've, I mean, we've, we just worked together a few days ago and he can like, um, he can like feel in his system when a Kriya is coming. <laughs> Sometimes even before I can, cause I can usually feel when they're coming too. But um, yeah, it was an amazing, amazing experience to have someone like that to work with. So when you first encountered the uh, reconnective healing, how, how old were you? Okay, so let's see. I'm 67 now. Um, so 10 years ago, about 57. Seven. So for about, if my math is right, 40 years, you didn't really have much to do with Kundalini? 
from the time that you were a teenager and you stopped with the yoga and then it reawakened about 40 years later? Right. No, I mean, I, I would talk about like with my therapist, Don Hook, actually worked with for a really long time. I would talk about the trauma of living in the ashram mm-hmm. and, and Yogi Bhajan, but it never occurred to me that I'd actually had a Kundalini awakening. Right. Until I started researching more and discovering that it didn't always show up the same way. Like the fact that I was feeling a high vibration of energy moving from my feet through the top of my head and that I was becoming, you know, paralyzed and unable to speak because that was mostly what was happening back then. Um, that that was Kundalini. I didn't know that that was Kundalini. Yeah. And, and until like it came back in the form of the, the Kriyas, um, which I did not have back then. Um It, it was it was sort of a, 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 a like a reawakening. It was like, oh, that's what's been going on all these years. And I, it was also just curious because um, some of the some of the experiences that I've had in my life have just been so intense. Um, and I've had. Um, like night terrors way into adulthood. Um, I would wake up and I would uh, like see somebody, you know, standing over me. Um, I mean, just, just things that um, didn't, you know, that weren't common. Right. For people to experience. Um, and so- I, I, yeah, well, anyway. <laughs> so once once you found the reconnective healing, you said that now things began to come up. There was like a purification, a sort of purging, emotional clearing experience happening, which of course we know is major theme, if not the main theme of the Kundalini process, which is this transformative healing uh, that takes place. I really liked that what you said earlier, and I I won't be able to repeat it word for word, but you said you know. Some of the experiences were neither comfortable nor ir- nor uncomfortable. I just understood that it was a process to be with these experiences. Can you speak a little bit more about this and maybe offer some wisdom to those that are in the midst of a very difficult emotional upheaval that's happening as a result of, of their spiritual unfolding? What can you say to them? What can you advise them? Uh, give them some tools for that so that they can use when you know they can't sleep because incredible emotional things are arising what can you say for them well it actually took me a really long time to figure out what worked for me um there were certain things that really helped me like um in my therapy sessions emdr and then also the um the eft the tapping um meditation um I've actually done quite a bit of meditation, silent meditation with my with my therapist. Um, I just have to say that, for me at least, it's kind of um, gone, you know, gone down into the dark night of the soul territory, into the depression, and then it's come back up again. And I mean, you could label that as you know bipolar if you were going to um label it 
with a psychiatric label. But basically, um, there are times in my life when it really doesn't matter what's going on outside. There's just this incredible um, peace and happiness. Um, it's like everything is just in its place. Um, and then I will go down into that, I don't, you know, whatever you want to call it. I'm not, not really sure what to call it. But um, for me, it's manifested as um, a lot of sadness and crying, um, sometimes anger, irritability. Um, and I guess what I've found works the best is just to really go into it, really just, just go into the pain. It's like realizing um, how much pain there is. I mean, I, not only have I gone through trauma, like, like sexual abuse and being raped and things like that, but um, our daughter's gone through trauma. My wife has gone through trauma. Um, and, and it's painful. I mean, we're, you know, we're human beings and we feel things and um, to just be with it and, and allow yourself to feel it um, is something that actually is not that common. People don't necessarily do that. They just kind of deny it and live with it and, and just go on as if, you know, nothing happened. Um, I guess that's the most valuable thing I've found is just by allowing myself to really feel the feelings, to feel the pain, um, that there will be a point at which that peace comes. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Really, that's been my experience as well we're so inclined to avoid and escape and deny our feelings. So many opportunities to do that today. One thing I love about the spiritual journey is that the simplest things are usually what we're meant to do. And so if something is arising, like you're saying, the simplest thing, feel it, be with it fully, allow it to pass through, to have its, have its voice within our, our experience of life. Let even the pain have a voice. And once it has its voice, it expresses itself. It's released and there's a deep experience of peace. And I really love the way that you describe that peace. Everything is in its place. Really, I love that. Thank you. I, I know that people out there are going to listen and they're going to feel your wisdom. And this will encourage them to not run from their feelings, but to sit with it. Because, you know, considering you've been through this journey in a very, very intense journey, you know, you're not here just giving lip service. You're not here just, you know, giving us uh, some cheap answers. This is real stuff here, right? This is real stuff that Mel is sharing with us. Just feel it. Give it permission to be in your space. Thank you. Thank you so much. So let's let's move ahead a little bit on your journey. So that was about when you, you said you were 57, mm -hmm. about 10 years ago. So how's the last decade looked for you once you began to now work with the recognition that, okay, I'm in the middle of Kundalini process. Okay, I, I understand I've got to sit with whatever's arising because it's coming to heal. You've got a sense that 
deeper and deeper experiences of peace come as a result of the healing work that you do. So where do you find yourself after these insights are coming to you, after this understanding of the process is coming to you? Um, let us know what sort of themes begin to emerge for you. Okay. Well, um, one thing that happened about 10 years ago was that um, I had been practicing as a massage therapist. Um, and I actually got my massage therapy training when I was 23. And I also got my training in energy healing when I was 23, because the massage instructor had a good friend who was an energy healer. So all of that came very early in my life. Um, and because of some, um, some issues with my hands, it's very common for people with type 1 diabetes like I've had for um, it's been, I think, 47 years now, um, to have problems with their hands. And it got to the point where I really literally couldn't do my work anymore um, as a massage therapist. And I had been um, thinking, oh, you know, what, what could I do? And I've done energy healing all this time, but people tend to be more drawn to getting a massage. Um, so I started to see people just for energy healing. Um, I think I got a little bit off track of your That's okay. Question. That's okay. L let us know about the energy healing. We're on the topic. Let's let's talk about it a little bit. So you began offering energy healing when your when your hands became a little, you know, difficult to to do the massage work. We can explore a little bit about why you think that might be. But do you, you know, let, let's just go into it. Do you think that might have been you know divine divine grace, the flow, kind of guiding you away from the massage work and into more energy work? I, I do actually. Um, yeah, I mean, I ended up having surgery on both of my hands, um, so it was it was fairly extreme. Um, and I think there was a part of me that was like, yeah, it's you know, it's time, it's time to move into doing this work that I was trained for when I was really young. Um, and my, my first. Uh, teacher was a woman named Rosalind Briere, and I still use some of the techniques that I, I learned from her, although I've kind of gone in a, a different direction. But um, a really basic technique that she taught me was working with, um, with a pendulum and holding it over each chakra to see um, how the chakra is functioning. And I've, you know, I've discovered that um, most people are not completely online. They've got at least, you know, one or two or three or four chakras that are, are not functioning. Um, and what I learned from working with people is that um, it's actually, for some reason, very easy for me to, um, to unblock them and to open them. Um, and generally speaking, I think that it's, it's never not been the case. Um, when I work with somebody, if there is a chakra that is closed or unbalanced in some way, um, they're always open by by the end of the session. And it does lead to people feeling um, more relaxed, um, comfortable, safe, um, open. I, maybe if, if there's been something that they've been really afraid of or concerned about, suddenly it will just lift and they'll be able to handle it. Um, 
you know, sometimes people release emotions. Sometimes um, ancestors will show up with support. Sometimes spirit guides will show up with support. Sometimes even a, um, a pet, a pet that has passed will show up. Um, I don't know exactly what it is um, with me specifically and what, what's, what's going on, but there are a lot of beings who work with me. Um, and um, some of the, the, the common um, companions that I have on these healing journeys um, actually come from Greek mythology, like um, Pegasus. Pegasus has been like my buddy for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, a Christ will show up. Um, I feel this um, very powerful connection with him. And um, it's actually partly because of this, this trauma that I've experienced with my hands. Um, I have this uh, like sense of... Um, you know, sharing that experience, like being, you know, right. being across and all the suffering. Um, there was a there was a thought that came at some point, and I can't even trace it back to exactly when it happened. But there was something about the the degree of pain that I've experienced um, that there was some kind of gift in there, even though like if I had a choice, I would just not want to have experienced all of that, but that um, it just, it, it, it has allowed me to open a portal, like a portal into um, communicating with these spirits that I work with and to working with um, the clients that I've worked with in um, shifting their energetic patterns so that they're able to receive more of the more of the gifts that they came here to work with, I guess. Right. Yeah. Right. And there have been some pretty extreme examples, like working with a young man who'd been in a serious motorcycle accident and who was in a coma and. Um, working with his energetic system in a way that um, basically, I don't know, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe he, he would have survived and maybe he wouldn't. I don't, I don't really know, but he did. He did survive, he did wake up, he did go back to college, did do all those things. Um, and he was in a coma for, for quite a while. I don't remember how long it was, but it was maybe, you know, six weeks or something. Um, and then, um, some people that I've, that I've worked with who've just been in an extremely emotionally difficult situation, you know, facing something that like a legal situation or whatever that they were really troubled about, and then being able to walk into that situation with more of an ability to deal with it. Right. Um, it's fascinating stuff. Do you work with people who sometimes have kundalini experiences? 
either they come to you already having those experiences or they come to you and they begin to have them. Is there, is there a Kundalini theme with some, some of the way that you work as well? Sometimes there is. Yeah. Sometimes there absolutely is. Um, I, I did. um, Yeah. I did work with somebody who shortly thereafter did start to have Kundalini experiences um, that he hadn't had before. I, but I can't say that I have anything to do with it. I don't really know. I mean, it just kind of happened that way. Um, There's a woman I know who was originally from, from India, and she had her sister come to me. And um, when I was working with her sister, I kept seeing these cobras. Um, and actually, when I did that little meditation with you at the very beginning, I saw a cobra as well. I don't know if that means anything to you, but... Um, so yeah, sometimes the kundalini will sh- show up in the form of um, the snake. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very common for me as well. Uh, the snake, the snake presence. Sometimes in physical manifestation of the animal, the snake. Sometimes a symbology. Sometimes a vision. But there's sometimes a dream. Snake's very common for me, as I know for many that many that experience kundalini phenomena. It's interesting that you mentioned that there was uh, somebody who was working with you and then later on began to experience Kundalini phenomena. I had a friend who was really sick and we we had asked uh, an energy healer to give him some healing. And it was a bit of like, a, you know, we'll try anything at this point sort of thing. And just being in her presence was, was I, I could feel something very palpable. And this was prior to my my own kundalini rising, you could say. And it was around the same time that we were having these regular meetings with with her treating my friend that I had my own rising. And for a while, I thought, you know, this lady had a big part in this journey for me. And I, and I still feel that she did for sure. But looking back, there was many, many things leading up to it. And she was just like one of those pieces. But definitely, I feel that when you come into the presence of somebody like yourself, who's who's aligned, who's got the kundalini flowing who's been on this journey for a while and if you're open and receptive by osmosis this is contagious you know we all begin to experience something a little higher frequency you can say we don't necessarily need to call it a full-blown kundalini awakening but there's definitely something palpable energetic that uh we can feel when we encounter those who have you know established themselves in the way that you have you know developed your skills as a healer as a transmitter. And I can feel that from you just, just, just sitting with you here, even though we're on a video call, right. You know, thousands of miles apart, but I'm feeling it. And it's, it's very powerful. So thank you for sharing that, that energy with me and for all those that uh, are out there listening as well. So if you would uh, tell us a little bit towards the end of our call, I'm going to get you to really send people where that they can connect with you, but do you offer energy healing? Is it only in person? Do you offer remote healing as well? Can, can people that are listening, if they're, if they're interested in working with you, is that something that you offer? Yeah, actually, I mean, obviously many of us who used to do everything in person don't do that anymore uh, because of the pandemic, but um, yeah, I, I work remotely and I've actually found that even with checking the chakras with the pendulum that it works just fine remotely um my preference is to work with people in person because it's just um i just really enjoy working with people in person. for sure 
I just enjoy it. But that doesn't mean that it's not equally as powerful online. It's just a, it's a different experience. I find myself working more um, with my voice and with guiding, um, whereas in person, it's more of a, um, a physical, I, I don't know, or, or energetic experience. Um, Interesting. So do you work within your own sort of modality or approach that is maybe a combination of multiple different modalities or is it one specific modality that you offer? Honestly, at this point, I don't even know anymore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, a lot of it is intuitive. A lot of it has to do with the person I'm working with and what their needs are. Um, but um yeah, I mean, in terms of skills, I, I studied with, with Rosalind. Um, and she's actually also an interesting person. She's a, a trans medium. Like she, she goes completely out of her body and has other beings come in. Um, I studied, let's see, reconnective healing, vortex healing, um, Reiki. I mean, I've done all these things. But I can't say that I do any one of them specifically it's more what somebody needs i guess the interesting thing about reconnective healing separate from the rest of them is that it doesn't involve any um physical contact um the the work is done in the in the field and for some reason for me personally working in the field is actually more powerful um in some ways um, uh, there's also a technique that I don't know how to do, but it's um, biofield tuning, where they work in the field with tuning forks. Um, and it's always surprising to me how strong the energy is and how um, powerful it is, even though maybe the person is out beyond 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 you know? so when you say in the fields can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by in the field as opposed to uh, physical contact well i mean the the energy field the aura um uh, well actually I, if you go back to when i was 16 years old i remember going to this tantra course with your bajan and um he would have us like doing these poses where we would hold our arms out and you know looking into each other's eyes for like an hour or something like that well <laughs> i started i started seeing all kinds of things you know in that state and you know one of it was the um was the you know the the aura the energy around the body um i don't think i see the whole the whole picture but i can see colors, I can see, you know, energy, it depends on um, what kind of space I'm in. Um, but um, yeah, I'm talking about the, the energy field that we right around us. Very cool. I like the way that you said, you know, you work intuitively based on your own, your own inner guidance. And that goes back to our original thing that we were exploring here, where we don't necessarily need to pledge allegiance and loyalty to one particular system, guru, organization, tradition. Even when it comes down to the healing work, you're relying on your own intuition 
right? There's something innate within you that knows how to navigate. Of course, we we seek the value that's offered, you know, from different systems and trainings and all that sort of stuff, and it's great. But if I can say, I feel like that is, if we stick to one of those boxes, we come, we become limited. But the intuition, our own inner, inner intuition, our inner guidance is unlimited. And so we can become very creative in those ways. And as, as you're describing here, it seems like something, you know, that surpasses all categorization and labels comes through and inspires you to do your work. It's very fascinating stuff. And this is, would, would you say that these capacities to heal come to everybody that undergoes a kundalini awakening and becomes, you know, relatively established and stable. Do you think everybody has some ability to heal? Is that a sort of universal thing you think, or do you think that there's not everybody that's meant to be a healer in their own way? I, I, you know, I honestly don't know. I think part of my problem is that I've lived in this reality for so long that I don't really know what, what is typical or normal or um, I really don't know. Um, right. I mean, I, I've, had over almost the past year a connection with a group um, in Berkeley that works with the with people in the homeless community, um, and I made a connection with one particular person um, who actually ended up living in the shelter. And we we talk on the phone almost every day. We're really good friends. Um, and you know, when I'm with him, I think, oh my god, you know, he was like this person, you know, sleeping on a piece of cardboard, going to the store to buy alcohol first thing in the morning and now he's got like three years sober um and even though he's like you know doesn't have a lot of money he's living in a shelter he still has its presence i mean this incredible presence and um i think that it's just something that some some people just have as a result of um, sometimes having gone through this tremendous ordeal. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can't really teach somebody how to have compassion, but clearly if they've gone through a major struggle like he has, you just naturally develop that. Right. Right. Yeah, I was just curious about your take on that, that idea that, you know, the Kundalini journey may or may not make us all healers in our own way. I'm just, I was just wondering because, um, I, you know, we see you're in your studio there and there are sometimes ideas that Kundalini will make you like a creative genius, an artist, a healer, all of these things. And I, I'm still not sure. I'm not sure if that happens to everybody. I think we all have different sorts of dispositions and different themes that sort of emerge. And the healer, the artist, these are sort of some of the the more common ones that we see. But I think there are some more um, incognito themes, I would say, that sort of emerge. People just become, like you said, you know, just very present. Their presence radiates. And, you know, not, they're not necessarily doing energy healing, but there's just something about them when, you know, when you when you encounter them. They're very, very present. And that makes everybody around them very present as well. You know, it's contagious. But on that note, tell us a little bit about your art and how that ties in with your spirituality, with your spiritual journey. I believe you mentioned earlier that you've been an artist for probably, you know, your whole life. Is that true? Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah, I have a picture of myself at the easel in nursery school. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to my dad, who was also an artistic person. Um, well, it's just it's just something that I've always loved, the creative process. Um, and in my case, I really enjoy more experimenting as opposed to having a specific idea in mind of what I'm going to come up with. Um, and I've also been taken away from it for pretty big chunks of time of my life. Um, I mean, there was there was a time when I... Well, I talked about going to Mexico to go to art school. Well, when I was in Mexico, there were so many tragic, difficult things that happened um, that when I came back, I just thought, oh, well, you know, maybe it's not safe to be an artist. Um, and it took me until I was like 35 and pregnant to get back to it, um, to, to go to art school again. Um, and then I majored in textiles. I have these big fabric pieces behind me that I did back then. Um, it just it just felt like there was something unsafe about, about doing the art. And so I just didn't do it. And then when I got into it again, it was like we, you know, just rediscovering this part of myself. And I went through a, a soul retrieval process with this woman who did like drumming journeys and um and then, you know, and then it would go away again. <laughs> it's like, I would, you know, I would lose confidence. And I think part of it is just that um, this particular world that we live in is not necessarily conducive to being an artist. Um, it's not valued in the way that, that some other things are. Um, and so, um, it, it can be just a very, you know, frustrating process. Just the whole marketing thing. Um, anyway. Right. No, I can relate. A bit off track there, but I'm sure you can relate. I mean, I know that you do photography, so. <laughs> yeah, I can totally relate. It's It's a very challenging path to take to be an artist. It's very different than, you know, any other job, right? You're battling right. with yourself, your own insecurity. You're battling, with, like you said, the market. Is it sustainable financially speaking? Of course, there's passion, there's joy, but can you keep the lights on by doing this? All these questions arise. There's a lot of imposter syndrome, all sorts of things arise. But then conversely, there's also the, the incredible joy that you feel when you enter the flow and, and something takes over you to bring that earth forward. I heard the, you know, it was a while back, but about uh, the pandemic, somebody had posted saying, you know, art artists aren't always appreciated. They aren't maybe always considered, you know, sometimes you might question their pricing. But just remember that when the world shut down during the pandemic, each one of us turned to artists for comfort, for entertainment, to give us something to do. We all watched movies. We listened to music. We spent time consuming art. And that's what saved us in a way you could say it's one of the things that saved us it was an interesting that i thought and it, you know it's true when things are going great we don't always acknowledge the artist as you think they're a crazy person you know but uh they're the first people that we turn to when there's you know nothing to do we consume art so tell us a little bit about about your artistic process you said you like to experiment 
do you get do you go into sort of channeling state do you get visions how how does how does your artistic process unfold yeah that's a really good question um well i guess one example that i can give you is um i've done a process um called um visual journaling where um I work in these on these pages with images, um, and I've done all kinds of things in here. But anyway, um, that was not just the the art, but it was also a group that met every week to do art together, um, and then we would share our work and um, comment on what others' art brought up within us, rather than looking at it from just an aesthetic viewpoint. Um, and that that process of visual journaling actually led into um, creating this deck because um, I actually used the, um, the art from um, the visual journal pages it goes the, as the background for the cards. Cool. So tell us about the cards. How are they meant to be used? Or, or is there a very specific, specific way to be use them? Can they be used intuitively? Tell us a little bit about how it came about. Um, well, it was an interesting process. And I have told this story before, but um, at, at one time, I was seeing a uh, diviner um, who works with a process called stick divination. And it's, uh, it comes from the um, Dagara people of uh, West Africa. And um, I've gone to see this person quite a few times, actually. Um, and in, in one session, it was, um, I think, in November of 2016, um, he told me that the spirits were telling him that I needed to create this deck of cards. Um, and that he saw me um, working specifically with groups of people with these cards. That's actually started to happen recently. Um, I've been um, hired to do some events, like a private concert, a Halloween party, a high school graduation, and I have a holiday party coming up where I'll be giving readings. Um, but basically, that the nature spirits were telling me to um, create these cards, and in that tradition, they're called the um, the Wedeme. <laughs> anyway, it's like I never thought about creating a deck of cards. I mean, what do, what is this all about? But then I thought, wow, I have you know, I have this resource. I have this whole big stack of journals, and um, I also have all my photography that I've been taking for years, and I could put those two together to to create the cards. And I specifically didn't like do a lot of research to figure out what other people were doing or saying um, or whatever. Um, I was not a card reader, um, so I didn't have a background in that. And I just allowed the deck to kind of create itself with me. Um, and, you know, what I came up with is <laughs> It's not it's not anything I've ever seen before. Um, like the back of the card, it has, um, as you can see, B on it. 
And in the case of the bee, um, I had done a couple of other designs for the back of the card, um, but they didn't feel quite right. And I consulted with a friend who said, I think you really need to do something different. And then I was out walking our dog after a therapy session and I asked in my mind um, about a bee. Do I need to put a bee on the back of the card? And then I looked down on the pavement and there was a bee. (laughs) (laughs) So I just took a picture of the bee with my iPhone and here it is. Cool. That was kind of how the process happened. I mean, it wasn't anything logical or thought out or, or anything. It was just uh, a process. So anyway, I could just draw a card and see what comes up. Sure. Okay. So I got this. I I realize that there's some light reflecting, but um, I got this card called Deep Dive. And Deep Dive um, is a combination of that art that I was talking to you about in the journals with um, photography. And in this case, it's a fluke from a humpback whale. I really enjoyed going out um, with my wife and um, going whale watching and experiencing that whole thing. So this is the um, this is the little booklet that goes with it. Um, and the idea of um, of writing the messages was like a completely foreign foreign concept. Um, I hadn't really written much of anything anytime recently. Um, but I actually ended up finding that process was kind of a a channeling experience as well. And I don't know if you want me to read this or not, but it's it's For the card? it's a it's a little short. Yeah, yeah. Give us the reading for that card. Okay. So, and it actually relates to what we've been talking about. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously. Okay. Um, You plunge deep into the ocean where you encounter a whale. With it, you you move with grace. Here you have the ability to navigate the depths of your emotional being. This is a power animal full of igniting wisdom, spiritual awareness, and enduring love. It taps into ancestral DNA and helps you to hear the whisper of truth within you. With whale energy, your life unfolds in ways that can address your deepest emotional needs and allows you to communicate with your authentic emotional experience. The world above the water remains to be explored with different senses once you return to the surface. Grab a hold of the whale's tail with certainty and allow her to move you deep into your own profound intuition. So for me, when I hear that message, I, I just, I find myself going into that, into that deep dive, into that journey, into the, into those emotions and then and then that whole process of coming back up into the realm where we experience it with different different senses right great yeah that's just echoing your earlier message about just feeling those difficult emotions as part of the purification as part of the healing process that kundalini uh you know drives 
right? And that's a very, very powerful card. I don't do much of any card reading at all. I think maybe I've sat down for a reading once at like a yoga retreat or something, just see what happens. Um, it's not really something for me, but that was really powerful. And I should look into a little bit more. You said that those messages, the meaning behind each card came to you in a sort of channeling type of experience. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a little bit about your process when it comes to channeling? I spoke a little bit about channeling in another part of the series in conjunction with Kundalini, in conjunction with what I would conceive of as the muse, the goddess, Kundalini Shakti, the divine mother, the creative force. Do you feel that relationship with this feminine creative force when you enter into a channeling state or when you bring something forth or say, for example, when you're guided to see that bee on the cement, do you feel that's that's the divine mother pushing you along? Uh, let's see. I, I don't think I've really specified it to that degree. I think I more just look at it as, as that intuition, as that knowing. Um, and sometimes there may be, um, there may, it may be Kundalini or it may be some other energy. Like, oh, I can, one example is, um, I was feeling, um, well, I was, I was just pondering the fact that perhaps when my Kundalini initially awakened that it did not go up the central channel, that it perhaps went up another channel. And I was like exploring this idea. Um, and it, it, somewhere in that period of time, I had this little key fob on my keychain um, with an image of um, Saraswati. Um, but I had mistakenly thought that it was Lakshmi because, you know, I, I didn't really know that well. Um, and then my friend Rajni informed me that it was actually Saraswati. And then I then I had this idea, oh, well, maybe, uh, you know, my Kundalini went up the Saraswati channel instead or whatever. So it's like sometimes these things will come into my life, you know, in the form of a key fob or whatever. Um, and they're like speaking to me. They're telling, they're giving me information, um, but sometimes it'll take me a little while to put it all together. Like maybe I've been carrying this thing around for a long time, and then suddenly I realize, oh, she was trying to give me a message. So in my case, I feel like it comes from a lot of different different sources. Right, right. That makes sense. Yeah, it's similar to my experience as well. I've got, you know, different connections and encounters with deities from all over. Um, and then there's the overarching theme where it's just, like you said, it's, it's intuitive. These aren't necessarily beings that are separate from ourselves. There's something that we share with them, which is part of our own intuition, our own innate wisdom, you could say. Really fascinating stuff, Mel. So we're coming towards the end of our call here today, our, our interview, our conversation. And I really want to thank you for for sharing so openly about your journey, sharing openly about some of the difficult parts of it as well, some of the solutions you found. So lots uh, that out there's a lot that you shared that will really validate a lot of our listeners. Let them know that Kundalini, like in your experience, isn't necessarily this very clear, simple experience of it rising from the root up to the crown. It can happen in all different directions, different degrees of intensity. It can stretch over very long periods of time, right? Um, it's it's important to understand that for many who might feel, you know, I'm having some sort of spiritual experience, but it doesn't fit 
this or that model of kundalini that i saw in you know a book for example well, kundalini is, is very very diverse and dynamic experience so thank you so much for sharing all of that i really appreciate that now for those who are interested in connecting with you to see some more of your work as an energy healer. Maybe they'd like to make an inquiry about connecting with you for a session, either in person, if they'd like to meet with you out in Berkeley or uh, remotely, I guess, over video call, over Zoom. Where can they connect with you? Well, I have my own website and um, it's actually my name, uh, Mel Hoffman. And the only thing you have to remember is that Hoffman is spelled with one F and two N's. Um, that's often misspelled. <laughs> um, I don't know why, but I was born a Calhoun with two O's. And, and then when I got married, I got Hoffman with one F and two N's. <laughs> it's not the typical spelling. Um, yeah. And then I, I also am on Instagram. And on Instagram, I have a link tree. And the link tree goes to um, a number of different places, including um my YouTube YouTube channel, which I've um, put videos on for quite a while, and uh, links to other podcasts, things like that. Great. Um, Great. Okay. So the links will all be in the description. All the links that that Mel mentioned, they'll be in the description. You can check them out. Uh, for those who would like to grab one of your decks, the link will be in the description as well. Those are for sale, I'm assuming? Yeah, my ducks are for sale, and they're only for sale on my website. I um, tried out Amazon briefly, and basically they just took half my money, so I figured it wasn't worth it. Um, one dream that I've had is to have them published with a traditional publisher, but these days um, it's not as easy to get get things published, so I just, I just publish them myself. Right on. Yeah. It's uh things are a little different now with publishers than than they used to be. But yes. thankfully we can make our own website, have our own store and and sell the things that we want our way. Right. And you know, the majority of that will come back to us to allow us to continue doing our work. Okay. And how about your art? Some of your pieces. I see that you're wearing a shirt. I believe that's inspired by a, an actual art piece that you've created. Yeah, actually this um this shirt that I'm wearing again. Okay. Great, great. That's really cool. Yeah. So, t-shirts uh, um, and things like that are also available on your website too. Yeah, actually, there's um, there's menswear that features my art art as well as women's wear and um, anywhere in between, however you identify. Um, I also sell my paintings. I sell prints of my work, um, including some photography. Um, there are a wide variety of things available. Um, I can actually show you if I tilt this a little bit, there's a, um, there's a curtain on the window. I also sell those. Um, I have a lot of, a, a lot of variety. <laughs> Great. Lot of yeah. And I, of course, I've been in this field for a long time, so, um, I've moved from textiles to photography to video to you know paintings so i've done a lot of different things awesome awesome thank you so much for sharing all of that with us mel for those interested in supporting mel and, and getting 
some of her art for yourself, check out her website. All the links will be in the description. Uh, the deck of the the deck of cards too, really cool stuff. And of course, for those who feel called to benefit from some of Mel's energy healing gifts, connect with her. I'm sure that there'll be some some great things that unfold for you on that front as well. Mel, thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing. Really appreciate your time here. On behalf of all of our listeners, thank you. Thank you very much. We really, really are so grateful. And for those out there listening, thank you so much for your attention as well, for sitting with us today, enjoying this conversation with Mel. I appreciate you. If you'd like to support this work, you can make a donation to keep these uh, interviews going, to keep the series going. You can find out more about that at brentspirit.com. You can also stay tuned for the next part in the ongoing Kundalini Awakening series. We've got some more stuff coming right now. I don't know what it is, but we're not done yet. There'll be some more. If you've got somebody else like Mel, who's wise, who's established themselves in a point of stability, who's ready to speak about their Kundalini process, connect them with me. I'd love to have them on the show. Once again, thank you, Mel. Thank you so much. We'll stay in touch. And until next time, much love. You're welcome. I really appreciate you being here as well. And there was a silent partner that I didn't mention, and that's our little dog, Andy, who's been sitting in the corner this whole time. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. I've got a silent partner. That's a dog <laughs> as well. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Mel. Thank we'll, you. We'll keep in touch, okay? All much right. love and peace.